This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense. This is Hill Vaden, and I am here as always with Brian Darty to discuss topics that lie on the intersection of energy and finance. Brian, how are you? I'm I'm perfectly fine, Hill. The more important question is, how are you? Hill lives in Houston, everyone. Um, if you aren't aware, so it's uh, how are you doing? How how are things for you? We've had better weeks. Uh, obviously, it was cold. Um, we, we've got. Uh, I've been without water uh, since uh, Tuesday, I think, without running water. Uh, JJ Watt announced that he's leaving the Texans uh, <laughs> on Friday, so so that kind of kicked all things off, and then it just went downhill down from, from there. there. <laughs> the, so what's interesting? I mean, it's it's terrible. And when I found out Hill didn't have what for all you listeners, when I found out Hill didn't have water, I mean, you you, you can't help but but feel sorry for the one thing I will say though, when I think of families that, that might be able to handle the situation pretty well, I think Hill and his family, because they actually, I mean, you guys do your long trek hikes through the Appalachian mountains. I mean, your kids. Yeah. I mean, you guys, you guys know how to hunker down and and make things work is what is at least the impression I get. So I feel like maybe they've, (laughs) they've taken this out as an adventure. Um, They have. And my, my wife was smart enough to leave town. Uh, on Sunday, so, so it's been me and the kids this week, and we've got sub-zero tips, sleeping bags. That there was a period when we were without power and heat, and so the house got rather cold. And we've got headlamps, so we've been, you know, having dinner in the dark and uh, using, you know, all sorts of camping know-how uh, to to get through this. Um, so it has been, I guess that 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 there's been some practical learnings uh, from all of that <laughs> camping experience. Learning. So. And and those vacations have have more than paid off. <laughs> I would say at this point. Yes, yes. Um, well, so so today we, we we've got three guests. We, we've got a, a crowded room. Uh, so so Mike Pickens, Wade, Wade Schaefer, and, and Doug Jufri. Uh, but Wade and Doug are uh, longtime uh, participants in Energy Sense, and Mike is new uh, new to the podcast this week. So welcome, all three of you. Thank you. Um, I was thinking but before the call just about how kind of we've got a crowded group here and uh, Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. Are you guys Muppets fans? Oh. No. That's not that's not ringing a bell. <laughs> Dr. No, Teeth I, and the I Electric Mayhem. Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem are the band uh, in, in the Muppets um, where Animal is the drummer. Um, oh. And I know you guys are all on the same team, and I think as what North America Power or something, which has much less of a ring to it than the Electric Mayhem. Um, so we we'll have to rename our group. Yeah, <laughs> time to rebrand. <laughs> I like it. I think I think that actually has a has a nice little ring to it. Well, yeah. you're the boss. You can make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Doug and the Electric Mayhem. 
Perfect. <laughs> that, that sounds fantastic. Just think of the people that would be clamoring into your sessions. Yeah, all sorts of Muppets, which the Muppets have also been on my mind because uh, the Beaker, the, the other Muppet, who never says anything, right, because he's got to turn over his mouth like that. I keep hearing people as I'm talking to them in grocery stores when people just give their, you know, hello or whatever, but they're all masks and it's like, <laughs> it sounds yeah, just not, exactly like a Muppet. Go along. That's basically what has happened. <laughs> I have no idea what they're saying. Uh, but we're here to discuss electric mayhem in Texas. Uh, not surprisingly, consider the event, considering the events that have gone on over the last, what are we, five days? Five days? Four days past? Four days? Like four, yeah, four days. It feels like longer. Yeah. It's been, it's um, been a trying week. It has. So, so Mike, uh, I, I think you're the uh, of the group here. You, you are the closest to this in terms of ERCOT knowledge. Um, can, can you give us a little bit of a breakdown of, of what happened um, and where we are now? Yeah, thanks, Phil, for inviting me. I wish we were, we were under better circumstances. But um, I think the good news, first of all, is that, you know, as we're talking right now, the grid has returned to normal operations. So uh, we have we've reached a turning point, and now it's time for us to start looking back and trying to identify what happened. Um, right now, it's really a story of two extremes. One extreme really was the uh, the demand that the Arctic cold blast brought into Texas. In fact, uh, the grid operator was expecting to reach an all-time record demand because of those extremely cold temperatures. In fact, the demand number they had projected far exceeded what they uh, had gotten over the hottest summer days in 2019. So we're really talking about some really extreme cold winter weather that was driving up electricity demand. And at the same time, we had another extreme, which is around the supply, where those cold temperatures uh, resulted in a number of power plants coming offline in really short order. And uh, we're hearing from the grid operator that they were minutes or within a uh, very short time frame of actually having to, uh, where the grid was at exposure for collapsing. And if they didn't make this wow. sudden decision to curtail a part of the load, it could have resulted in an entire system going down, which I know this has been a horrible week for everybody. Uh, it could have been a lot worse where we could have had outages for weeks, if not a month or more. So this was really a story of two extremes happening all at one time. So I think that's the, the picture that's been painted so far. And how does it, th this is the second time in 10 or 11 years that there's been winter disruption like this. Is that correct? In, in ERCOT? Yeah. Yeah, so we had a, a winter weather event back in February of 2011, but it was nowhere near as extreme as what we've just uh, gone through this week. So just for a couple, I'll toss out a couple of numbers that may be helpful. Back in 2011, uh, we had to shed about 4,000 megawatts of load. Now that compares to about 18,500 megawatts this time. Another important metric to keep in mind is just the amount of time that they had to have involuntary load curtailment. Back in 2011, the entire outage lasted about four hours. This has been days and days and days. So this this stands out from all the other previous uh, extreme weather events that we've had in Texas. It's um, 
it's really a watershed moment for this for this power market. I think, and naturally, I come from you know very much a lot of my my background is in the gas world. So I have to say, I was very surprised by the the gas component of this story that we've the events that we've seen happen over the last four days. Is it fair that I'm as surprised, or was this something that people were aware of the vulnerability potentially to the gas system around around weather? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think one of the terms that we're all going to be learning more about in the coming days is winterization. Um, you know, in Texas, it, it doesn't tend to get that cold during the winter months, and so power plant owners are trying to make this calculated decision about how much winterization they uh, perform on their power plants, and also the natural gas suppliers too. How much winterization do they do on some of their equipment? But you know, this wasn't um, a surprise. You know, this was one of the findings that came out of the uh, 2011 um, situation, where uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission performed a, a, an after-action study, and one of the themes that came out of there was around winterization and whether we were properly winterized back in 2011. And, you know, sadly to say, I'm not sure that we've made tremendous progress um, since 2011. And a lot of the um, the situation we find ourselves in today was, was really around this winterization, winterization around the power plants, winterization about getting natural gas uh, fuel to the plants. So it, it's going to resurface. And we've actually seen the governor step in and issue an executive order to begin mandating some of this winterization. So I think that that's going to be one of the low-hanging fruits in terms of market reforms, uh, but I think there's a lot more that's going to occur over the next coming months and, and years above and beyond just uh, stronger winterization mandates. How – I'm going to go to Doug here for a second, though. So can you – should I be comparing it to the PGM crisis of the polar vortex? Should are, are these totally different storylines? Because they both have a gas component to them, which is what made me want to, like initially, that's where I wanted to connect the story. We'll get to Wade on the on the California side of it, because I feel like uh, you know, there's there's things that have been happening in, in around this ERCOT event that, you know, ring very familiar. Um, but maybe I'm being a little bit naive there. How, how does this relate or not relate to PJM crisis? Yeah, I don't think it's naive at all. In in fact, you know, Mike and I wrote a short insight for clients um, yesterday, just kind of describing the situation and some of the insights or takeaways, uh, things to watch for in the days and, and weeks ahead um, that I think will be relevant. And there will be comparisons to PJM. There are going to be people that question ERCOT's market design and you know, this may get a little too far into the weeds, but quite simply, you know, ERCOT has a model where the general thinking, this is oversimplifying it, but the general thinking is allow electricity prices to rise to very high levels when conditions get tight. And when you have periods like that, it should send a signal to the market that, you know, it, you know we should invest in generation technologies here. Uh, we can take advantage of these high prices in the future. That has been their plan, and over the years, they've escalated the cap on how high electricity prices can get. They can get up to $9,000 per megawatt hour in Texas. That is far higher than any other market 
um, in the United States. Um, markets like PJM, on the other hand, use a capacity market where they essentially pay different resources, generators, demand response, et cetera, um, a monthly payment to make sure they're uh, in the market, uh, to give them incentive to keep themselves available. Now, PJM had that market in place when the polar vortex hit there in uh, 2013, 2014. They had a lot of coal stacks that were frozen, gas generators that were unavailable. They've had to go, or at this point they've done it, but went back to the drawing board and said, we need to tighten up performance incentives within these markets. Just having the capacity in place is not enough. You need to create the right incentives so that they are doing things like winterizing, keeping fuel, uh, solid fuel available, having firm fuel contracts. Um, but one of the points I make in the paper is that in PJM, the penalty for being unavailable is something on the order of $3,500 per megawatt hour. It's not at all clear to me why that's a better incentive than leaving $9,000 per megawatt hour on the table if you're a generator in ERCOT um, and you're not producing. I mean, those that were available this week are having significant uh, profits and earning significant margins. Those are unavailable, leaving a lot of money on the table. In theory, that should create enough of incentive for them to make those winterization investments. The practical matter or the evidence is clear that many of them have not made those investments. And that's an assessment on their part that the likelihood of events like this are so low that they wouldn't justify making the winterization uh, investment. And what's really interesting, when Mike and I wrote this paper, it was prior to the governor uh, asking the legislature to go ahead and, and demand winterization of the power fleet and to have costs recovered um, through a regulatory mechanism. That is a really interesting step for Texas to take, you know, which has historically been somewhat laissez-faire. You know, allow the prices to rise, the market will take care of it. Um, that's proven uh, that they haven't made those investments. And so maybe we're seeing a bit of a swing in the pendulum away from just very deregulated, allow the market and more toward a regulated environment. How far that swings will be very interesting. Um, but you know, it's, you know, get to go back to your question relating this to PJM. I do think it's similar. PJM struggled uh, in the polar vortex then. They've since changed the market rules. They released a press release talking about how well their fleet performed this week. In fact, they have such a extremes excess of supply that they set records for exporting electricity. Uh, but on the other hand, they didn't have the extreme weather that Texas had. So I think PJM's approach and New England's approach still have not yet been tested. Um, you know, we'll see when, if and when we get another extreme cold snap in the Northeast, how will they perform? So it sounds like there's not a clear model to Texas to look to for if we had only done this, um, we, we, we would have been in a better situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's not about market design and model um, because you can generators there are making very rational decision. If they truly believe that the the potential for an event like this is so low, the winterization costs may not be justified um, by potential profits. And again, if this only happens once every decade, you're talking about a generation fleet that is already very concerned about a lot of wind and a growing amount of solar on the system. 
that are depressing the revenue they're going to earn. And so for them to take on additional investments in winterization, they may be making a decision that it's just not in our best interest. It may very well be in society's best interest that those costs are incurred. And that's why I think this action by the governor, you know, is is very important because they're saying it's probably insufficient to just hope the generators make the investment on their own. We need to mandate it. And if we're going to mandate it, we probably need to allow them cost recovery. Do we have any ideas what that means to consumers? I mean, is this an extra dollar a month or an extra hundred dollars a month? I don't have good numbers on that, um, but I think it is pretty clear. And one of the things we've been talking about and doing a bit more digging is, um, you know, that much has been made about the wind turbine performance this week in ERCOT and, you know, turbines being frozen and, you know, wind turbines operate in very cold conditions and throughout North America, you know, in Alberta, they've got wind that operates in quite cold conditions across the upper Midwest that happens that, you know, there are investments you can make in winterization and de-icing to keep those turbines. It's probably wouldn't make sense to do that in ERCOT normally. Uh, but if you are concerned, especially in the future, as wind becomes a much larger uh, part of the mix, assuming we continue down this decarbonization road, um, it will likely make more sense and maybe those costs would be justified. What those costs are, I, I don't have great numbers on that. Okay. So then, I mean, to, to bring Wade into this, you know, the, the, when we spoke this summer, it was about the, uh, call it the California electric mayhem. Um, right. are, are there, I know we're different seasons, one's hot, one's cold. Uh, California and Texas are also different in many other ways. Um, are, are there any similarities here looking at this from more of an objective kind of policy perspective? Yeah, I mean, the recent events in California around the summer, but before I, I talk about that, I mean, I was I was sitting here, you know, seeing the news and the devastation in Texas, and, and my, my KISO app is going off telling me that there's alerts in California and, and asking generators to cancel maintenance and be available. So even in California, I mean, there's concern around the winter, and there's a little different. It's... I mean, there is there is electric heating demand does go up, but but the gas system again is is um, kind of the the stress point, um, and um, and you know I think we're all familiar with with the environmental regulations and the move to decarbonize California. So I mean, part of it is the gas system can be tight on um, on sort of peak winter days, and so it leaves questions about you know is there enough gas to go around for the power generators and everyone else who needs it to heat their buildings. So it's very similar to. To Texas, uh, but on the other hand, I mean, part of it's also due to Aliso Canyon and the failure of that um, facility and restrictions around its operating levels, and they do let it um, let it operate above sort of regulated levels in an emergency, so that helps bring relief. But 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 anyway, so I mean, even in California, when you know the emphasis is on summer on heat, winter is also um, something to keep an eye on. And even this week, you know, the, the power, the operators were really looking at it, even though the conversation is all around summer. Um, so, but I can, I can talk about, you know, summer and similarities there as well. I mean, I guess what's similar is that it's a weather event, right? Um, in California and the blackouts that happened there in August, it was extreme heat sort of beyond what was expected and historic, I think historic records of you know, high average temperatures across such a large portion of the state and and across the whole region, the Western U.S. Um, it it um, I guess what's what's 
different is the magnitude, right? So at the time, it was um, the worst was a gigawatt um, for two hours on a weekday evening, and then the power came back. And that, you know, in hindsight, looking at the devastation that's in Texas, I mean, it, it's a bit of a blip um, as far as, you know, uh, system failure. I think the one thing to keep in mind is that if it could have been a lot worse in California, it could have been five times worse. It could have been five gigawatts later that week if customers didn't respond and cut their electricity consumption drastically later in the week when it was still very hot. Um, and so in that sense, you know, California kind of skirted by without without experiencing the devastation that, that Texans have, have suffered. And in California, I mean, it was um, generators, you know, bore a lot of the responsibility. And in the media, like in Texas, you know, there's media discussions about it was renewables fault, it was solar's fault. But really, I don't think anyone expected solar to be there at night when the sun was setting. And it's really a question about all the other resources that combine to make up the portfolio of, of generation resources that meet reliability requirements. And so one of the weaknesses in the supply side was gas generators. And um, and when it's really, really, really hot out, right, you know, the, the power plants are in the outdoor environment. They're heating up, too. And when it's really hot out, they can't run at quite the same level that they do when it's sort of a normal cool day. And so you had a lot of gas plants in California not operating at full capacity. And so all that adds up. And uh, in California, it wasn't an astronomical amount of outages, right? Like what Mike Mike talked through, um, I mean, it was, I forget, you know, 20 gigawatts or something of, of gas plants or close to that um, were offline at one point. In California, it was more like three, you know, three to four or something like that. And, and I mean, it's so it wasn't astronomical. It was certainly reasonable in history. It's just a question of, okay, it was really hot. Supply side sort of reasonable things happened as expected. Why did the market not have enough power to keep the lights on? Why did we have to cut off electricity to the people? And then that raises questions about really the policy design, the market design, what risks are being planned for. And now California is scrambling to recalibrate what risks society demands the power system to plan around. And so that's changing the way the, the grid operator and really the power community at large is, is planning reliability in California now heading into summer 2021. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Wade, when we had this conversation about California as well, one of the, thing, one of the takeaways was sort of the increased um, importance, or at least people looking at it a little bit more closely, increased connections with neighboring grids and the ability for import of, of power during some of these situations. Mike, can we, and, and obviously, Doug, you, you spoke about how PGM pride itself this year, for instance, on their ability to export power. What about, with my understanding, ERCOT runs runs solo here, right? There, there, there isn't that ability to import, or am I, am I not understanding that correctly? Was there just no ability for them to maybe leverage off of some neighboring grids? Yeah, no, you understand it correctly. I mean, there's really limited interconnection with the uh, rest of the country in ERCOT. Um, you know, they can import some from Mexico, really small. They can import some um, from what's called the Southwest Power Pool. And they can import some from what's called a, a MISO market. But really, they're almost isolated in and of themselves. And I think that's partly what contributed to uh, the grid opera making that decision to shut load because there isn't an ability to really bring in large amounts of power to meet this sudden unexpected demand. Um, you know, I know there's going to be conversations about do, should ERCOT be more connected to the broader uh, country? And uh, those are going to be some policy decisions that uh, 
I think they're going to be, you're going to hear more about in the coming days. But right now, they are. Because what's interesting is if you look at Texas as a whole, though, I mean, Texas as a whole is actually connected to all the power grids. So, for instance, El Paso, Texas, is actually connected to the Western Interconnection. If you look up at the Texas Panhandle, uh, that's connected to the uh, Eastern Interconnect. If you look along the Louisiana-Arkansas border, that's connected to the Eastern Interconnect. So, you know, Texas is unique. It's got this uh, real mix of most of it's pretty well isolated, but you've got some of the surrounding areas that are connected to the the broader power market. So, and maybe this is maybe it's an unfair question because I know we're still waiting for data to come in, and and it could be just yeah. purely speculative. So it might be an unfair question to you, but would it have helped? I mean, is, is that no? Okay, not to this degree. Okay. I mean, the scale that we're talking about here is enormous. Um, so, for instance, you know, when ERCOT put together their uh, final winter outlook, you know, and under normal weather, they were expecting about 58 gigawatts of electricity demand at the highest hour. In an extreme case, it would have had another nine gigawatts on top of that. But the day before they shed load, it got up to almost 74,000 megawatts. I mean, these are the difference between the, what they forecasted and what they started to anticipate the day before. The gap's just so large that you wouldn't have been able to bring in additional power from neighboring markets and, and solve this problem. It was just too big. And okay, whereas the, in Paizo, it would have it would have made a difference for the gigawatt potentially in the California crisis. So, oh, in California, I mean, in California, I mean, I know again a lot of people in the media and industry even really are hitting on imports and said imports are part of the problem too. But honestly, looking at the data, the imports performed as expected and actually exceeded expectations. So. You know, utilities in California can contract imports as part of their, you know, overall strategy for having enough power resources to meet demand. And they actually got extra imports. Now, they didn't max out the interconnection, you know, the interconnection, which is the actual lines that connect California and the neighboring markets. And I think when you get in these crises like ERCOT as well, you hear a lot of folks talk about, oh, we could have gotten all this extra power from everyone else. But in reality, everyone else needs their power, too. Um, you know, I think around ERCOT, a lot of other systems were stressed. And in California in the summer, the heat waves tend to hit the whole West Coast. So, you know, everyone is in the same boat dealing with extreme climate, extreme weather. Everyone's using all their infrastructure. And in the case of California, they actually used more of the infrastructure than they contractually secured ahead of time. And it certainly helped, I guess, you know, it helped make the crisis from being worse. But I don't think you can wire your way out of problems, out of climate problems, by just you know increasing the amount of wires going to your neighbor. What's yeah. the just real quickly on the, the the unexpected demand surge? Is that we we just underestimated the number of space heaters that were going to be plugged in at one time, or, or how do we miss it by that big of a mark? Well, I think this storm was just so severe that it was, you know, the temperatures were so much colder than what they using their what they call extreme scenario you know and their extreme scenario is more like 2011 uh, weather this mm -hmm. is a lot colder than even that so I yeah mean, just, just, the storm was just that much greater just uh, if i could just add very quickly i think both on imports and on uh, demand planning and projecting um 
To me, this is a story about shortcomings really across the board. So would it, increased imports alone have saved the day? Unlikely. Um, but because this is a problem uh, or there were issues across the board, solutions going to have to be widespread and across the board. You know, take ERCOT's demand forecasting. Their extreme case, as Mike said, was based on 2011. That's probably too conservative. Clearly it was too conservative. And maybe need to begin thinking about more extreme weather and, and how that could impact it. Um, the supply side outages, you know, we talk about, you know, 30,000 megawatts, 35,000 megawatts. For people listening, that may not be a tangible number. Think about the entire New England power grid. Their entire generation fleet is about 35 or 36,000 megawatts. That's what was lost here in ERCOT in terms of uh, power plants forced offline. That is a significant amount of the fleet that is just unavailable. Um, and so that's why, you know, imports alone uh, would not have solved this problem. And as Wade pointed out, you know, there were cold weather events going on in neighboring regions. Maybe if you could tap into far eastern markets, there would have been some assistance to come. But the solution is going to include uh, projecting demand and assuming more extremes are potential, um, doing something on the supply side to you know, insulate the generators, working with the natural gas industry for them to winterize, and also uh, potentially increasing imports. But, you know, it is important um, to remember that uh, Texas likes limited uh, connections with neighboring markets, um, and they don't want to expand and be fully interconnected to the extent that that would bring a regulation from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. They're very happy, historically have been, to be regulated within the state. So looking ahead on some of this, I mean, there's been a lot of, you know, finger pointing in the in the news. There's been, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, whether it be editorials or Twitter or just conversations on the sidewalk, um, you know, looking at the weather and looking at whether it's wind, whether it's gas. As we're looking forward at kind of possible solutions, you know, Doug, to your point, and um, you know, where, in in a sense, the winter, where where's the positive opportunity in this, and what what's involved in winterization? Is that, um, you know, is is that an opportunity for the the marketers, for the grid, for a whole another firm uh, or type of firm? Um, what, what do we see going forward, and how quickly do these pieces kind of get put together? Uh, policy. It would seem that this was is not going to be a quick policy fix. Um, maybe Mike, start start with you. Yeah, in terms of just the winterization, I think that's going to be one of that's going to be one of the minimum outcomes of this process. You know, it's interesting. I've actually been following this market since after the 2011 um, extreme weather events, and what's interesting is that you know at that time. The, the conversation had a very small group of people. You know, you had the generators, you had the regulators, you had the large industrials. What's different about this time is you now have the voters and you have the policymakers and you have the governor. The circle's much, much bigger. And so I think we're, we can expect a much different outcome because you're broadening that conversation. You know, in the past, this state legislator said, look, we've made our decision about the market design. And in fact, 
when the regulators tried to consider a capacity market, one particular state legislator uh, drafted a law that prevented them from even talking about it. Now you've actually got state legislators that are going to begin positioning themselves as a solution maker. And, um, you know, when you start entering politics into this bloodstream, you really never know what's going to happen. You know, one of my concerns is that out of this is you may get some short-sighted decisions that may not be best for the market because you're making some short-term political decisions. You know, if we think about how we got here, you know, we when, I mean, at the turn of the century, we decided to deregulate Texas. And it was a really long and methodical decision-making process. You know, we had years of preparation and studies, right? One of my concerns is that this may be a very short-term political um, situation where policymakers may be more interested in politics than protecting uh, the grid and, and the power market. So I think that's one risk to at least be mindful of as we start hearing these conversations. You know, the hearings start next week. You know, next week, uh, ERCOT goes before its regulator, the Public Utility Commission of Texas. And at the same time, I think they've got a meeting scheduled with some of the state uh, energy legislators. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of politics that uh, enter this bloodstream. And it's going to, we just don't know the outcome at this point. And FERC won't enter at all, right? They're they're going to be completely uninvolved because this is state regulated. Is that, is, am I right there? We don't have to, well, or, or nobody should be watching the federal space for policy that might be. Yeah. Yeah, the federal. I mean, we've got the we've got NERC, uh, who's gonna who does have uh, a voice in this conversation. Um, but I think a lot of the movement we're gonna see is we're gonna see a lot of state action. So I think that's where you're gonna you're gonna see a lot of um, a lot of the conversation. Doug, did you want to say something? Yeah, I think you know I think uh, Commissioner or Chairman Glick of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission who's already said that they will uh, launch an investigation. I imagine just as they did after the 2011 event, there was a uh, investigation done by FERC staff alongside NERC staff. NERC is the North American Electric Reliability Coordinator. Um, and they had a lot of findings and recommendations about weatherization across the South in the power fleet. Um, I imagine that they'll have similar findings here. Uh, it certainly seems like, you know, we, we are beginning to understand exactly what went wrong. We don't have to mo many of the details yet. Um, as I recall, after that last event, there were some NERC standards that were discussed, but um, were not implemented. Uh, we may see something here that's implemented. It certainly seems like the governor wants to push for that. But FERC lacks jurisdiction to mandate actions within ERCOT. Uh, so, you know, so we they may can make observations and recommendations. That's right. But they can't really do anything. Right. Like, so, for instance, you know, back to PJM, you know, they, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission can tell PJM, we find your current tariff is, uh, you know, unreasonable and, uh, you know, you need to adjust your market to accommodate. X, Y, Z, you know, whatever the issues are. They lack that jurisdiction in Texas. Is that unique yeah. to Texas? Is, is it, it is. Tyson? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, just the images that you've seen on television, I mean, the voters are going to want a pound of flesh. Yeah. I mean, th that's, what's, that's what makes this 
uh, completely different than the last time because the last time it was this conversation between the generators who were wanting more revenues and the industrial customers they didn't want to pay too much. This is different. I mean, the voters have just lived through a week of hell to be candid and they want accountability and they want change. And when you enter that short, when you, when you, when you enter the political dimension, um, you, you never know what the outcome may be. Yeah. I was going to share, you know, my observations from seeing California a little further down the road. And I think granted it wasn't as severe as, you know, the impact on Cal the Californian people was not as severe um, you know, in magnitude as it has been in Texas. So it is interesting, you know, right now California is responding by buying every power plant they can find that's available for this summer. You know, the regulators are telling utilities to to buy all the capacity they can find. And what does that mean? It means people's retail bills are going to go up because now they're paying for more power plants. Uh, it means that gas power plants on the coast that harm marine life are going to stay around longer and continue to have a negative environmental impact that other policies trying to solve. It means that maybe carbon emissions don't go down as quickly. And so there's already uh, sort of the environmental interest group response sort of challenging um, this this quick pivot in the other direction of, of really we need every resource we can find and sort of, you know, I guess protecting against a, uh, protecting against a worst case scenario that maybe people haven't fully quantified. Well, what is that worst case scenario and, and fully quantify the optimal way of ensuring against that worst case scenario and so, you know, right now it's the scramble to to protect this summer if there's another extreme heat wave. But what happens if this summer's mild? What happens if it never gets above 90? I mean, people have short memories and things I talk to. You know, what I think if you're in the market and you own power plants or invest in infrastructure, today's crisis is tomorrow's excess. And you could be mm -hmm. on the losing end if we don't have another extreme heat wave and, and policymakers and the public forget. Now, now Texas, I think it's going to be a lot harder to forget the devastation people are dealing with. But in California, you can, I'm already seeing the pendulum swing back and forth and it's hard to tell where it's gonna stop and land. Yeah. I think that's a, a good point, Wade. I think this event, and as we saw with California, um, people are going to use these events to support all kinds of different positions. You know, so we've already kind of seen um, the governor of Texas and others kind of criticize uh, renewable energy, you know, saying if uh, this represents what the Green New Deal would mean, it'd be a terrible deal. Uh, you know, the, the facts are that ERCOT wasn't expecting much from the wind fleet. Um, but nevertheless, that argument will be made. I think there will be those who are critical of uh, the thermal fleet and fossil fuels pointing out that, you know, natural gas really struggled here. And you know, they've historically said this is a very resilient fuel. We need these fossil fuels in the industry. They may, folks may argue that this undermines that that point. I also think, you know, we are talking about longer term electrifying significantly other sectors um, in an effort to decarbonize. And when you have widespread outages like this, it it's natural to wonder what would that mean? You know, how could these other sectors be impacted to the extent you are electrified and you lose power for multiple days here. So I think there's a lot of questions. There'll be, again, a lot of different angles taking on this in the weeks and months ahead. I think what you raised there, Doug, and, and probably a good note to end on is, I mean, there were these, there were these U.S. events, but in January, Japan had an event as well. 
um, where they had their own power crisis. This isn't just a U.S. problem. This is this is definitely something that we're seeing creep up in global markets. And you you point to the electrification, and and it's just higher and higher demand every single day. Our demand is going up because we're electrifying everything. Uh, I I have to think that from a planning perspective as we look to these new energy sources be they batteries or, or be they new types of technology that are potentially that has to be becoming becoming a greater part of the conversation as to how these technologies will respond to various weather events and, and the potential reliability that they could be bringing to a grid so I, I i think there's a lot a lot to come around that and um this might sound like a shameless plug but i'm going to do it anyways uh our a team power team is going to be obviously discussing all of this and more on March 5th on, on Power Day for Sierra Week. So I, I feel like it almost sounds like that was rehearsed and, and I should have a little music go on in the background. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it's it's important to remember that we're, we're having this conversation. We're having this conversation on Friday, February 19th. So four days after the crisis hit, the we're talking about what we know. You guys are doing a fantastic job of explaining as to what's happened and the data that we've seen so far. But as you said, there's going to be so much discussion that comes in the days in the days to come. And you know, I think you said the legislature is going to start talking about it next week, even. Um, so as as we look at that, what what is it that you guys think March fourth? Let's imagine this conversation happening March fourth with all of you guys. Uh, where do you think the conversations, what do you think the conversation is going to be dominated about? Is it going to be about policy or is it going to be about the actual technical aspects of how we fix the system from a physical standpoint? I think on March 4th, it's still going to be politics. It's going to be theater. And um, and then once that's over, we're going to have to sit down and really think through this from a technical standpoint about how do we prevent this from ever happening again? And um, I think that's when the real work begins. After the cameras are turned off at these legislative hearings and, and the politics um, calms down and all of the smart and brilliant people get together and figure out how do we prevent this from ever happening again, that's when the real work begins. I, th I think I think people will be grappling with the uncertainty grappling with what what world do we live in? What world will we live in a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? And I think and I think the important thing to try to keep in mind is, you know, as we recover and heal from trauma and, and, and the crisis that happened is just there are solutions. It's more a question of society determining what risk is acceptable, what cost are people willing to pay to ensure against those risks? And I think really, um, just realize that you know we're on the we're on the beginning edge of just a technology-driven revolution that um, has the potential to usher in a, a lower carbon future, and that there are technology solutions. And one thing you know, analytics and responding on the demand side, because I look at California, even though the lights went out, um, collectively all of California cut you know four or five gigawatts of electricity demand and, and kept the lights from going out going out later in the week. And if you could use analytics to automate all that, to scale it up and to manage it all, you know, through technology, um, you know, it can really help protect against a lot of these risks in perhaps a reasonable cost way. So I think, I think even though, you know, something traumatic just happens, even though there's a lot of fear that could happen again, I think there also needs to be a healthy dose of, you know, bravery and realizing that there are solutions uh, and technology enables solutions and that we, we can figure it out and figure out how to move forward.
Yeah, and I, I would just kind of echo that. I think there's going to be a lot of discussion about how we need to plan more effectively and plan for more extreme scenarios. I think that's true for both what happened in California and what's happened in Texas here, was maybe an underappreciation for how extreme weather can impact the grid, both on the demand side and the supply side. Um, so they'll be rethinking that. And then there's going to be a frank conversation about what are the costs involved in uh, ensuring the system against this type of event? And is there a willingness uh, on consumers' side to incur those costs? I mean, I think at this point, it'd be hard to think that the cost of this event would not justify some investment. Mm -hmm. um, but as we go forward and this begins to fade in people's memories, are they going to be willing to accept higher electricity bills, uh, you know, to minimize the risk of this happening in the future. Well, time will tell. Yeah, and I think also there's some, you know, just sitting in here in Houston, I mean, there's some bigger things outside of the immediate focus on power where you know, I mentioned to you guys earlier today that I went to the grocery store last night and there was nothing there. That There was all the fresh food had was gone. Uh, I couldn't even get a frozen pizza. And so there's, you know, bigger in a sense, or not bigger, but but there are other challenges in this. And, and when I walk up and down my neighborhood, every third or fourth house has water pouring down its driveway because the, 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 the codes around the building hadn't addressed the idea that your outside pipes are going to freeze. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've got the, the, the generation issues and the demand issues, but there's there's other there's other things that if this becomes an every 10 year event, uh, Coincidentally, J.J. Uh, Watt's rookie year was 2011, the last time of this event. So <laughs> maybe this is all tied with his. This is all tied to J.J. Watt's. <laughs> maybe we need to be on the Tom Brady schedule. <laughs> Just never retire. Well, watch out in Ohio if he signs with the Browns. That's, that's the rumor. <laughs> I, think, I think the Jets were asking for him, weren't they? I feel like I read oh. article. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to go to a contender. Um, all right. Well, needless to say, this was a, a timely conversation and we really appreciate all three of you have been swamped this week, uh, you know, especially Mike, I can't even imagine. Um, and also great appreciation out to Hill, who's who's managed to make it on a call even with no running water and um, <laughs> spotty electricity. So kudos to you as well. Thank you all for being here. And um, I think it's pretty safe to say that this is a conversation that's going to be revisited frequently over the months to come if not years to come so uh, it won't be the last we hear from you guys but thank you very much for joining us thanks guys thank you thank you to read additional insights from our team of experts visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com energy blog you can also find our experts on social media by searching for ihs market energy on either twitter or linkedin have a topic idea or want to send us feedback email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com this podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.